This is Lead with a Question. If we think about this idea of bringing our dreams to work, about dreaming for a living, one of the great predictors of how long someone is going to work for you, how long someone's going to work with you is, do they perceive that there's growth upside? Do they perceive that there is an opportunity for them to grow? Hi, I'm Rob Callen. We live in a time when people are seeing that the old way of doing business is broken and that leading into the future requires something new, a deeper focus on humanity, the courage to let go of power and ego, a desire to nurture the conditions for co-creation, and the bravery not to have all the answers. On this show, I, along with my friends Chris Deaver and Ian Clausen, connect with guests who embody these principles. And whether household names or not, they've shattered the status quo, often as misfits, to shape the future with others and achieve miraculous things in work and life. Imagine for a moment that you're suddenly forced to switch to your non-dominant hand for a week. Getting dressed, feeding yourself, brushing your teeth, the tasks you used to do on autopilot have now become deeply challenging and awkward. But by the end of the experiment, you've gotten the hang of it. What was once an inconvenience has gifted you a new set of skills. Our guest today has spent her career empowering others to embrace disruption both at the personal and organizational level. She's found that with the right support and mindset, continuously seeking out the uncomfortable is the only way to keep growing throughout our lives. Today, she'll guide our discussion with the powerful question, how can self-imposed disruption accelerate your development? It's a conversation with Whitney Johnson on this episode of Lead with a Question. I was an equity analyst on Wall Street. I Prior to that, I was an investment banker. And actually, prior to that, I started as a secretary working for a stockbroker. So the whole story of disruption. Um, but more recently, I around 2011, 2012, I was working with Clayton Christensen. And we had, with him and with his son, had, had started the Disruptive Innovation Fund. And one of the big insights or ahas that I'd had as we were investing was that this theory of disruption wasn't just about products and services and companies and countries, but it was also about people. I had written in an article in the Harvard Business Review that had come out in 2012, actually right about the time that Steve Jobs died, so around that time, and it was titled Disrupt Yourself. And there was a lot of interest and a lot of curiosity and a lot of ahas for people of, oh, yes, that's true. It isn't just about products and services that companies don't disrupt, people do. And so that started me on this journey. I wouldn't say started, but continued this journey that I was on of, I really, 
even though I grew up in the stock market and had been a stock analyst, I realized I was more interested in the momentum of, of people than I was of stocks. And, and writing this article of around disrupt yourself was a continuation of that. And so in 2012, I started speaking about these ideas and um, gradually started coaching around these ideas. I've since written four books and um, our business today is disruption advisors we um, teach people about personal disruption. We te teach people about the S curve of learning, which we can talk about in a minute if you'd like. And um, as we help people grow, then they make it possible to grow the people around them. And as a consequence, they're able to grow their organization. So we have an assessment tool that you can take to see where you are in your growth. And then we wrap coaching and consulting and workshops around that. So at its simplest, our business is a tech-enabled talent development company. So Whitney, I think that teaser trailer you gave of your, your background uh, is pretty exciting uh, for people. I mean, these are not small things, right? Um, like Clayton Christensen, you know, that philosophy of disruption is legendary, right? And to your point about personal disruption and what that means for us in our lives, uh, and perhaps too in cultures, right? As far as the future self of a culture. And I, I guess we're curious, you know, this kind of story arc, right? Of how your work has emerged and, you know, how you would kind of describe that now and, and you know, where, where it's headed. I think that we're curious about that. So the very first book I wrote, and we won't talk as much about this today, was called Dare, Dream, Do, Remarkable Things Happen When You Dare to Dream. And the purpose of that book was really, I had, as I said, I started as a music major. I had gone and ended up being successful on Wall Street. Um, as you can tell, I'm a woman. And um, that was pretty unusual starting as a secretary. And so you know, being in my late 30s, early 40s, I was so excited and feeling this sense of optimism and confidence and having these conversations with a lot of friends, women in particular, and asking them, what's your dream? What do you want to accomplish? And oftentimes they would say things to me, like, I don't know what my dream is. I don't know what I want to do. But there was often this unspoken, I'm not sure it's my privilege to dream. And that really was heartbreaking for me. And, and so that book came as a way to encourage these women who, by the way, were helping me figure out how to be a better mother, um, to go out and, um, have a dream that was for themselves. And the way I have thought about it since it's not in the book is that I had met all these women that were really good at being harbors. Um, yes, good at being harbors. I had gone out and gotten good at being a ship. I was now trying to learn how to be a harbor and I wanted to teach them how to be a ship. And so that was the very first book that I wrote. And in some ways it was about disrupting yourself, even though I didn't really have the language to describe it then. Now, from a business context, um, we've talked about this idea of disrupt yourself. It's really taking all the, the, the notion of of uh, disruptive innovation and applying it to you as an individual. In that book, I talk about a seven point framework that allows you to disrupt yourself. It includes things like taking the right risks, playing to your distinctive strengths, embracing your constraints, examining your expectations, stepping back to grow, giving failure its due and being discovery driven. It was really meant to be this, this way for people to think about if I want to do something different, from what I'm doing right now. And in some ways making sense for me of my decision to leave Wall Street, because people thought I was absolutely out of my mind. What are you doing? 
Well, what you find when you disrupt yourself is that it may be that the functional jobs that you need done are being done. You're making the money that you need to make, but there's an emotional job that's that's undone. And in my case, I felt like there was something more. And when I'd gone to my manager and said, hey, I'd like to do something more. They said, we'd like you right where you are. And I realized, oh, yes, people do need to disrupt themselves. And so this framework is meant to say, I understand that you may want to disrupt yourself. I understand that you may be terrified to disrupt yourself because you're leaving the status quo. Here is a framework for you to do that. Now, that can be from a career standpoint. But another insight that I've had over time is that as you are growing and developing, there are all sorts of micro disruptions that can happen. And I want to talk about the S curve, but every single day, if you want to make progress. So disrupting yourself isn't just about your career. It's about how do you make progress every single day of your life? And you do that by being willing to make these micro disruptions, by being willing to say, am I going to play to my strengths today? Am I going to take a step back in order to grow? And so this framework was meant to make it so that people would say, I know there's something more. It feels a little bit frightening to me. Here's a framework because I know I want to make progress. Here's a framework to make it feel just a little bit safer so that people can move forward in the the way that they want to. So that's Disrupt Yourself. Then the next book is people build an A-team and people would say to me, So I don't want my people to read your book because if they read your book, then they're all going to quit their job. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. It's about this micro disruptions that I just described. So what I did is in build an A team, as I said, actually, your team is a portfolio of S curves because everyone's on an S curve. So let's talk about how can you use this framework to construct a team and what we set forth was, is when you're creating your team, you want um, roughly, if you think about a standard bell curve distribution, roughly 60% of your people in the sweet spot of their growth, 10% or 20% in the the launch point of their growth and 20% in mastery. And so that's build an A team. And then the most recent book, Smart Growth, which we keep talking about the S curve. So we will do that in just a minute is all about taking it back to the individual. If you want to grow your organization, you need to grow your people and you start by growing yourself or disrupting yourself and giving people a mental model, which is the S curve of what that looks like. Because when you understand what growth looks like, you increase your capacity to grow. Well, one initial reaction I have is, you know, these principles that you've been immersed in over the last few years, uh, it, it seems that their time has really come, especially right now with the macro changes that we've all been experiencing. And I think a lot of people seeing these macro changes in action and maybe taking more steps forward to say, you know what, this is not working for me. I want to change my myself. I want to change my my situation. Is it accurate to say that there's sort of been this this convergence of of factors that have kind of prepared people to be more receptive to the principles that you've been kind of teaching and studying? Yeah, it's a great, great question, Rob. And I the answer is absolutely. Because one of the things that we saw with the pandemic is that we were all disrupted. Full stop, all disrupted. And One of the challenges that we as individuals have is that the older we get, the more we can insulate ourselves from ever doing anything new, from ever disrupting ourselves. And so the pandemic 
was a force, a forcing function, a forcing mechanism for disruption. And what we discovered is that we were better at disrupting ourselves. We were more resilient than we thought. We were more capable than we thought. We, we got better at doing new things. And so as we were coming out of the pandemic and psychologists call a period of severe stress, like a pandemic, um, there's often tremendous growth. They call it post-traumatic growth. And so coming out of the pandemic, what has happened is people have said, huh, I did things differently over the past two years. I liked doing things differently. I felt things. I saw things. I reconfigured my life. I want to keep doing things differently. And so now people are saying, I'm going to do things differently. I'm better at disrupting myself and I want to keep disrupting myself, which is, by the way, when people call it the great resignation, I know there's lots of different um, names for it, but I think it's more of the great aspiration. Because people are saying, I aspire to more. I want more. I know I can have more. How am I going to do that? Because I know if I will disrupt myself, I can have more. So that to me makes this last two years very, very exciting. And I would like to think that these ideas are especially relevant. Actually, I wouldn't like to think. I believe that they are especially relevant now. Yeah. And so do we. Yeah. I think to this point about timing, right? Where it seemed like before and, and, you know, working in tech and supporting you know, tech companies and culture work, uh, what's, you know, really culture transformation, uh, now, you know, I don't hear the term change management anymore. Uh, and I'm kind of happy about that. Mm-hmm. It just felt like it was really a, con- a control. Uh, it was a false sense of security and control, right? Like being in a raft where you've got a team and it's, it's like, Hey, we're just going to stay in the shallow end and we're just going to, you know, kind of glide along, you know, next to the, to the sand and we're going to be fine. And yeah, that's one way to, to do life or business, but it's not, it's not how you, you know, have the reward of the experience. It seems like leaders have shifted from, you know, maybe looking at disruption as, Hey, this is a box I can check if I want to. Right. And now it's, mm. well, this is, this is muscle memory that I can either get in the game and be building with my team and my culture, you know, or not. Uh, and, 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 you know, we see it in, in great companies, they've built it into the DNA, right. Of their teams, this mm-hmm. embrace of disruption and this willingness to kind of do the mirror mm-hmm. test or to, to shift. And so I think for those leaders or people that are curious, you know, how do they get in that game or, or do that kind of full embrace? Cause it's uncomfortable. Yeah. So you, you just reminded me of a conversation I had not too long ago. One of, one of the, a C-suite executive that I coach that's involved in transformation. And, and we, we actually had this entire conversation around, they're in the process of, of implementing these innovative, transformative ideas across the organization. And one of the big big discussion points around this was, okay, so if you want to transform your organization, how, how are you going to do that? And the, and the only way actually for you to have the moral authority to do that, because you're in transforming the organization, you're asking the people around you to disrupt themselves, which means you're going to have to disrupt, you're going to have to grow yourself. So what is that going to look like? What conversations do you need to have? What kind of humility do you need to display? Because if you will do those things, 
then you will have the moral authority to ask other people to do it. And because of the contagion effect, they will be more likely to do it. Um, and so I think it's, it's, it's fascinating and exciting because there's so much that we think we don't have control over. But the one thing that we do have control over is our behavior. And we completely underestimate the power of when we are willing to disrupt ourselves, when we are willing to grow, how that will influence other people to grow and change. And by definition, your company, your organization will grow. Nice. No, that's great. And it actually reminds me a lot of one of the other um, conversations we had. His name is James Matthews. And he talked a lot about that feeling of being alone kind of at mm. the start of, of a change or just trying to do something new, trying to, you know, get, get some momentum. But he said, once you start, you know, if you can just find one other person, then that momentum just continues to grow and grow. And so I love that, that concept of, you know, self-disruption, but then finding yourself surrounded by people who will participate in that disruption as well and sort of lend their energy to, to the effort. And, and I love that. Um, can you think of any examples from your research or people that you've encountered um, that sort of stand out to you as being particularly strong examples of, of that sort of self-disruption? Mm. Yeah. So, so there's a private equity firm that we work with. And oftentimes you think about private equity and it's just all about the financial engineering. Um, this particular private equity firm is called Brand Velocity Group. And the, the managing partner, his name is Steve Leibovitz, and he made the decision that he really wanted to change the face of private equity. He wanted it to be more humane. He wanted them to think about the people themselves. And so one of the things that he has really focused on is he he got coaching for himself of I am going to change myself. He made coaching available to the rest of the team. He's made coaching available to the CEOs of the portfolio companies. And so we do a lot of coaching for those portfolio companies like barbecue guys, which you might be familiar with. And he also made the decision of they're going to share the gains. So when they sell those companies, 10% or up to 10% of the profits will go not just to the executives, but also to all of the people throughout the organization. And oh, by the way, they're making coaching available as well. So this is a managing member, a managing partner of a PE firm who said, I'm going to do things differently. I want to show up in the world differently. I'm going to lead by example by getting coaching. I'm going to make these changes. And now there's this contagion effect for his partners for the portfolio companies that they're invested in, and now for the people who work inside of those organizations. So I think that's one example. And, and as a consequence, they were able to attract as one of their major partners, Eli Manning, who some of you know um, from football. So it's, it's very powerful what, what he has done um, because he was willing to disrupt himself. Yeah, I love that example because it's kind of a, it's interesting, right? That it becomes a magnet, right? For mm -hmm. other people that believe in, and, and, you know, in those principles, I think more than we've ever seen, there's a movement of, uh, the workforce, people feeling more empowered to decide mm -hmm. and there's their passion. They, there's probably more pent up sense of creativity and a, a, a desire to bring their hearts, you know, to, to work or to, to do the, the work that makes their heart sing. And that could be something mm -hmm. on the side or, or converging it with their work. Um, and it's, 
it seems like now more than ever, a leader has to be not just somebody who, you know, can retain people, right. Or, or counter offer when necessary. Um, but be somebody that can inspire people with a cause, right. That like these companies that even though they're big, they still feel like upstarts, right. They may have a hundred thousand employees, but they are inspiring people like, like it's a huge garage and getting people behind a cause. Yeah, I think there, there are a couple of thoughts are coming up for me. I think the, the first is um, this idea and obviously popularized by Simon Sinek of we buy the why. And so when we're really clear on why we're doing the work that we're doing, which you've just described, we that those the greatest brands, they're, they're not thinking about making money. They're thinking about building something that will make a difference in the world and change someone's life. Um, and so I think there's that element of there's a strong, strong anchor of why are you doing the work that you're doing and do the people feel connected to that work? I think this is also a good time for me to talk briefly about the S curve because one of the things that people are, they want to bring their dreams to work. They want to know that they can grow at work. They don't want to just dream at home. They want to dream at work. We spend a lot of time at work. And so one of the, the frameworks that we use in addition to personal disruption is um, something called the S curve of learning. Many people are familiar with it because Everett Rogers popularized it back in the sixties. And he used it to think about how groups change over time. We used it in investing to think about how, how quickly an innovation will be adopted. But the aha that I had, and I think what's really relevant to this conversation is that it helps us understand how individuals change, how we learn and how we grow. And so every time you start something new, you are at the launch point of an S-curve and you're grasping for knowledge to accelerate. You don't know quite, you know there's an opportunity, but it feels terrifying. And the experience that you have, even though growth is fast, feels very slow. Huge opportunity, but it's feeling slow. But then you tip into the sweet spot of your growth where everything is feeling exhilarating. Growth is fast. It feels fast. We call it the sweet spot for a reason. And then you reach mastery where you figured everything out and you know exactly what you're doing, but because you're no longer learning, you're no longer enjoying dopamine, you find yourself saying, I know I'm really good at this, but I can't do this anymore. I can't do it one more day. I need more dopamine. I need to jump to the launch point of a new curve. And so what you now have, it's a very simple model to understand what does growth look like. And when you know what growth looks like, then you know what's next. When you understand the emotional arc of growth, you understand why it's hard to start something new, why it's easy once you do start, why once you are really good at something, you have to do something else. The reason this is important, if we think about this idea of bringing our dreams to work, about dreaming for a living, one of the great predictors of how long someone is going to work for you, how long someone's going to work with you is, do they perceive that there's growth upside? Do they perceive that there is an opportunity for them to grow? And if you think about you that we're talking to this morning, anybody who's listening, every time you have left a job, left an opportunity, it's because not because you weren't making enough money. It probably was because the emotional job that you needed done of growing and developing was no longer being done. You'd gotten to the top of that S curve and you said, there's not an S curve for me to jump to here. 
then I will jump to a new S curve. I will keep climbing somewhere else. And so as we're thinking about leaders, as we're thinking about brands, if we can create the conditions wherein people can grow, and you can use this S curve to have that conversation about that, you are going to be able to retain people. And because people love coming to work, they are going to deliver great customer experience. And as they deliver a great customer experience, guess what? Your company grows as well. Awesome. Yeah. Whitney, I love the description of the S-curve in terms of an organization and in terms of an individual. I think it paints a very clear picture for folks that are leery about starting something new and you know, it actually provides a little bit of a framework and structure to like, you know, the ebbs and flows of that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked a lot about, you know, kind of the early stages of disruption and where people might be on the fence to even get started or even like the brave attempts of a leader that and, and the contagious effects of, of implementing something disruptive in the workplace or amongst, you know, their people. I'm curious about the other end of the spectrum, you know, um, something we call the optimization trap, right? Where people, you know, have tasted that shift from dependency to independence. And it's like they're in this perpetual cycle of seeking something new. Maybe they're addicted to the S curve, mm. right? And in, in a sense where, um, they're always looking for the next podcast for self-improvement or personal development. They're, they're signing up for program after program to develop their skills. What have you learned in your research and, and kind of through your material about the, the opposite side of, yeah. you know, optimization where it could be taken to an extreme? Yeah, it's a great point. And and I agree, you can be an adrenaline junkie of just, I want to just keep jumping to new S curves. Right. I want to keep doing something new. And, and we do see this happen sometimes in very hot talent markets, where people start to, you know, they're on the launch point, and they start to get some traction, they move into the sweet spot, and they feel like they know what they're doing. And then someone comes along and says, Hey, I'll pay you double. Um, come work at my company. And what happens is they start to, to gain some competence, but then they go and jump to a new curve. They haven't completed that process. They get more money, but there's arrested development because they started, but they didn't finish it. And so one of the things I do encourage people to do, as you are have alluded to, is to ask yourself, when you jump to a new curve, is it because it's actually you're at the top of the curve and it's actually time? Is it possible that it's the wrong curve because there can be person product or person S curve fit? And you say, this actually isn't the right S curve for me. I've collected the data. It would suggest I need to be doing something else. Um, But are there times when you're on a curve and you just don't want to persevere? You just don't want to stay there because there's something that's shinier and brighter and newer. And so you, you, every decision is individual, but that gives you some ways to think about it and make that call of, am, is this in the long run, really the best decision for me? As I think about the S curve of my career that I want to scale, 
yeah, I'd like more money, but if I'm not going to develop, then over time, I am going to be of less worth in the marketplace. So does it make sense for me to take a little bit less now, stay with us another six months, stay with us another 12 months, and then jump to do something new? So the short answer to your question is yes, we can be addicted to jumping to new curves. And those are some ways to think about or, or assess and decide whether or not actually this makes sense to jump or if you want to stay with it longer. Yeah, great points. I, I feel like perhaps maybe the why is missing for some individuals mm. and, and they're going, you know, they're, they're trying the, the new diet, the new exercise regimen that the people in, in, you know, their circle of friends are doing, or yeah, they're just, you know, maybe they're not grounded with that sense of purpose. And so they're, they're just, it's kind of like, you know, they're, they're addicted to trying new things and disrupting themselves, but there's no direction. There's no, there's no anchor point to a, to a larger macro view as you were describing. Yeah, or, or no actual progress being made. Because I think right. uh, you know, something I would say, Ian, is that I think part of the reason that we're, we are all able to do podcasts is that we understand that we need to continually refresh our motivation right. and, and, and um, have additional tools to make progress. And so I think that there, it does make sense to keep learn or keep learning about new ideas. I think the question is, is are we ever applying any of those ideas or yes. are we doing that? I just listened to this podcast. I must be better. <laughs> right. but we didn't do anything differently. And so while on the one hand, listening to new ideas, reading new books can prime our brain for action and they can get us in the mindset where we will do something differently. At some point, we must take that step and do something different. And if we're willing to do that, then yeah, we want to listen to new stuff, but we still want to get that traction. And so what's your ratio of listening and thinking you learned something to actually, you know, putting your foot on that S curve and, and, and making progress? It's the, yeah. it's the difference between surface level and then the depth that's required to actually mm -hmm. change. Right. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. On that note, you know, we've seen a shift and we were talking about the, dis the disruption of, you know, pandemic and some of these major changes mm -hmm. over the past year or two years. And I just keep thinking of, you know, the comment, uh, that Peter Thiel has said about, you know, take your 10 year plan and, or map it and then do it in six months. Well, we kind of had that handed to us, right? And, I love that. <laughs> and mm -hmm. here we are. Uh, and one of the things that's, to Ian's point, has been questioned pretty openly, you know, beyond the kind of sub celebrity making of, uh, you know, kind of self-focused, you know, posting. Um, but it's this notion of like hustle culture and the pursuit of optimization and at the risk of... Uh, frankly, collaboration and co-creation, right? Mm -hmm. We know there was a mental health crisis before the pandemic, right? 70% of people were disengaged before the pandemic. They can all imagine what those numbers are truly now. Uh, and so mm -hmm. one of the questions that's come to mind is, as we think about, and I, I was reflecting on some experience, some personal experiences. And first I'll say this, I, I had, I've had an experience, you know, over the years in my career, uh, we're about every three or four, about four, every four years, I would you know change from one company to the next. And again, these are great experiences at different companies. I was at Dell, went to Disney, uh, you know, four years later was at Apple. And at one point I was talking to a friend and, and then I left Apple after about four years. 
And I was describing, you know, my career experience and he's like, hey, that's the S curve, you know, and it's, <laughs> it's aligned to, that's right. You know, yeah. US curves. Yeah. And it was like, this is aligned to, by the way, you know, about a four year degree, right. You've experienced, um, you know, an education and you're, you know, you've kind of, and, and for me, it was also an experience of doing work that I, it was mission driven for me, but it was leaving it on the field. Right. And then once I got there, I realized, well, I've got to, I've got to learn something else. I've got to do something else. I, I the curiosity that's come to my mind is, you know, or, or I think maybe for some of us, Wait, Chris, is, before you go on, can I just jump in? Can yeah, I yeah. just jump in? Because if you think about that, that if you map out your life, you will see that in general, every three to four years, you do need a new S curve. And so one of the things you're seeing is that you, the first year you're at the launch point, you're like, I don't know what I'm doing. Why did I do this? And then you hit the sweet spot and you have a couple of years where you're just in the groove. Like I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. And then that top year, you're okay. What am I going to do? It might be a new project. It might be a new role in this company. And that's how people can stay at companies for 25 years when they figure out how to do that. But you just map that beautifully of the launch point, sweet spot, mastery, time to keep climbing. And you can trace everybody who's listening. You can trace your life and you will see that it's a series of S curves. Absolutely. And I, I've been thinking too, I think the other thought that may re, people may be reflecting on in the context of collaboration and, and co-creating something meaningful, right? Building things together. Uh, you know, as I reflect on my career in that context, I could say, well, there was moments where I started in a company and those S curves were perfectly aligned with a, several other people that were, were starting, right? And they had similar frustrations, similar questions. And we started to build things, right? So like at Dell, we started building, we created a think tank, we call it Game Changers. It was kind of a shark tank type thing. We ended up uh, partnering with Michael Dell and the, the C, you know, C-level executives. Uh, and then, you know, at Apple, was, there was a, a team member, uh, she'd been in the company about eight years, but she had made a transition to another uh, kind of role inside the company. So when I was starting, that coincided. And so I think for people thinking about how do I co-create, how do I build things with others and, and what, where are they at in their S curve, right? Um, how do they mm -hmm. kind of best gauge that? And, you know, one of the ways is just time, right? So to your point about, mm -hmm. you know, and, and new experiences, right? Have they shifted to something new where they have fresh eyes to see? And then if somebody is also just kind of sitting and maybe feeling like, Hey, there's, there's, it's, it's kind of latent or they're, they're just kind of this pent up, you know, time, you know, how do they, how do they uh, explore that in, in the context of working with others too, if they want to build something together? What I would say is that you're on an S curve, Rob's on an S curve, Ian's on an S curve, I'm on an S curve. We're all on different S curves. And so when you're collaborating with someone, you are inviting them to jump to a new S curve, to disrupt themselves, to disrupt what they're doing currently. Sometimes they can keep going on their curve and you can keep going on your curve. So you're sort of doing this parallel play. But in the best collaboration, you by design or by happenstance or intuition, you both find yourself at the launch point of the same S curve. And you're having this experience of it being incredibly messy because you don't know how to work together yet. 
You don't know what it looks like to co-create together yet, but you're making this decision that you are creating a new S curve, one that could not exist without the two of you or the three of you or the four of you. But initially, as you're figuring out how you're going to work together and what that's going to look like, and is there in fact an opportunity for us to co-create because we're not so different, we can't, but when we're not too alike that we can't either. But over time, as you figure that out and you tussle and you skirmish, you start to find that you as a team, you as a team of collaborators tip into the sweet spot. You start to gain momentum and you start to do really good, good work, work that you're proud of, work that you could not do by yourself because the sum of the parts is greater than the individual parts. And then for many collaborative teams, at some point, you will reach the top of the curve. The project will be over. What you set out to do, you did it. You accomplished it. And there can be the tendency to say, let's just keep going. Mm, no, don't do that. Say, we did it. You want to be, you want to celebrate the fact that you did it, but celebration means you're memorializing that it ended and it's time to begin something new. And then you will go work on new projects. And so that's how you can think of the S curve when it comes to collaborating and co-creating. It's that forming of this team, but also knowing when you have reached the top of the curve and it's time for you to jump to new curves and take on new projects. I, I love that. I, I'm curious too, your, with your experience with, you know, with Clayton, right? You personalizing the model of disruption and you know, to your point about co-creation, in the context of the S curve being introducing a new conversation or a different conversation, was that something new that introduced a new conversation where you're able to co-create with him? Right. And I, I know you all did other work, uh, you know, investments yeah. and, uh, there's you know, the South Korea fund and maybe that was something new, right. Too, where, you know, it, it was a new conversation that enabled something different. I'm curious about that. Yeah. Yeah. So in this particular instance, this was much more, and I think, I think there's space for this as well as much more of me having these ideas and me creating them. And then him over time saying, wow, Whitney, that's really interesting. And kind of, I, I, the very last conversation that I had with him, probably, I don't know, six months, maybe a year before he died, he just said, you know, I'm really, really proud of you. And every once in a while, every once in a while, I just have this feeling and you can hear me getting emotional of just him saying, I'm proud of you, Whitney. Good, good work. Good job. Um, but in this particular instance, it wasn't so much that we were co-creating, but that he was, and I think this is really important. Um, we talk about keystone species and a person without whom you couldn't do the work that you're doing. For me, he was a keystone species because as I was going out and developing these ideas, at any given point in time, because of the asymmetry of power, he could have shut me down very quickly, very easily with no problem at all. But instead, he created that space to say, go, go, go build this. And I'm proud of you. And I, I, I'm, I want you to, I want you to succeed. I want you to go beyond this S curve. This can be your S curve. It doesn't need to be mine. And I think that's a really important gift that we can give. And actually you just made me think of one other thing that I want to share because I think this is important. I remember having a conversation with Richie Norton, who wrote a book called anti-time management that just came out. And we were talking about another person who's been a wonderful influence and mentor for me, Bob Proctor, who wrote a book called you were born rich and sort of was 
the generation before Tony Robbins. And we were talking about Bob, who was in his late 80s. He passed away earlier this year. And, and, and Richie made the observation, I think this is really true, is you look at it and you say, wow, he's in his late 80s and he's still relevant. How did he do that? And I realized, and, and Richie said this, and I, I think it's absolutely true, he stayed relevant because he was helping people. What does that mean in, in, in our conversation here today is he was making other people's S-curves possible. He wasn't just saying it's about me. He had moved to this legacy place of what am I going to do to help other people create? Do I need to co-create with them? Maybe. But more importantly, I'm going to create the conditions wherein they can create. And that, you know, for those of us who want to stay relevant in our 80s and 90s, I think it's a great model is you stay relevant by making it possible for other people to create their own S-curves. It's absolutely beautiful. Yeah, well, I, lo- I love this notion too. You're, you're tapping into about uh, kind of connection and the space that people create. Ian talks about this in the context of um, you know creation that leaves room for creation. Oh, I love that, Ian. You know, f- for me uh, personally, Stephen Covey was a was a mentor uh, with our work with mm-hmm. BraveCore. We've had conversations with Ed Catmull uh, that have been similar to mm-hmm. you know what you described. Uh, you had 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 with Clayton. You know, where we'd share things or just be curious and, you know, about the brain trust at Pixar, how these things operate, you know, how culture works and all along, you know, and here's a guy who's done, done it, you know, kind of done it all in the, in the creative context, right? I mean, it's, it's in his book, Creativity Inc. Um, but, you know, again, uh, just letting us have the space of, wow, well, you, you're, you're creating things and you're doing things and, you know, um, just go. This is great, right? And having that kind of support in our corner, and I guess it speaks to the power of, you know, say mentors. But um, these kinds of, you know, and, and it helps when you have, you know, folks like that that are Jedi level. The fo- the people we're talking about. That's a good description of Ed Catmull. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, so I, I guess, you know, probably people are wondering, okay, how, how does that work? How do you, you know, connect with these kinds of people? Is it a matter of, you know, and, and then, and then also do you, um, you know, build in your experience, uh, you know, and I guess for you personally, or, or what you've seen with other leaders, you know, that they get to a place where they say, wow, you know, I have, I have something that is, that is shaping that's meaningful and I want to bring this, mm-hmm. you know, in, into the world. Um, I guess, I don't know, I, we don't have to go down that path, but I, I'm, that's just an interesting, I guess, observation about uh, this notion of S-curve is it, there's a, there's a whole element of like either forces or invisible forces of people that uh, are, have made a huge impact, right? Or making a huge impact as, as we move. And, and it's, it seems like an accelerator for the S-curve. So going back to that Peter Thiel comment of the, you know, 10 years and six months, is there a way that somebody could say, well, that's three or four years is fine, but I want to do that in six months, right? Um, that they can just mm-hmm. hit the accelerator with, in the right way. And I'm guessing that's probably what your, your experience was with the 100 Coaches program. It was something like that, I, I would assume. Yeah, it's interesting. So uh, two thoughts. I, I think there are ways to accelerate it. I mean, that's where the, the personal disruption piece comes in. There's definitely some element. I, I have two thoughts, and this isn't an answer to end all answers, but there are two thoughts here. Number one is that oftentimes the thing that is 
limiting us as people talk about, I want more mentors. I want more in, you know, people who are around me who are going to help me do what I want to do. And some people say, when you talk to them, they'll say, this person's a mentor and this person's a mentor. And like they have a million mentors and other people will say, I've never had anybody mentor me. And at different points of my life, I have been both of those people. And one of the things I have discovered is that if we want more people to mentor us, we need to be mentorable. And I'm not sure that we're always mentorable. And what do I mean by mentorable? Well, if you want to be mentorable, when someone gives you advice that you want to mentor you, you follow their advice and then you circle back and you let them know that you followed their advice. It sounds super simple, but it does make a difference. And when they give you feedback, you're able to be gracious about it and say thank you and to act on it and not be fragile to just be able to take that in. So for anybody who's saying, I want more mentors, those are some things to think about because that will over time give you more mentors. People want to mentor people that think or they think are going to go out and build momentum and do things successful. We're, we're, we're human. Um, the second thing that I think about of that acceleration piece is so many of us, we all have met people who just go out and do things. And we think, how did they just do that? Like, how, how did you do that? And you start to analyze their mindset. They don't have self-limiting beliefs like most of us do. They're just like, well, I just went and talked to that person. And then I just did this thing. And then of course they wanted to help me because then we were going to build this thing. And so if we want to really accelerate we need to do that work of action, finding ourselves. In fact, I've got a great example of this. This is perfect because you just talked about Ed Catmull. Two years ago, I said, I would like to have Ed Catmull on my podcast. And then here's what I said, but he would never come on my podcast. How's that for self-limiting? How do I know he will never come on my podcast? Did I ever ask him? No, I did not. <laughs> so I had some colleagues, some friends dare me and say, why don't you ask. And then you can find out if he will come on your podcast. Well, lo and behold, I asked him and he graciously said yes. And so my second piece of advice would really monitor that language, those things that you are saying to yourself or to other people, because if you will be aware of those and you will start to shed yourself of those things, boom you're going to start to hit the accelerator. You're going to start to hit the gas. You're going to start to zoom up that S curve. This episode of Lead with a Question was produced by me, Rob Callen, with support from my co-hosts and BraveCore founders, Chris Deaver and Ian Clausen. The music you heard was composed by Ian as part of another project he's involved in called Moon Machine. Dave Arcade created our podcast cover art. Special thanks to Whitney Johnson for the conversation today and for setting us all onto a new S-curve. To learn more about Whitney's company, Disruption Advisors, and all of her offerings, including executive coaching, certifications, her podcast, and her books, head over to www.thedisruptionadvisors.com. If you want to learn more about the work we're doing at BraveCore, you can check out our website at bravecore.co. The Lead with a Question podcast is a production of BraveCore LLC. Thanks for being with us. Thank you.